Good morning. My name is Janice, and this morning's scripture reading is Acts 22, verse 30, through chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The word of the Lord. Well, two quick things before I pray. First, um, after church today, I'm excited about this. Our church staff is going to drive nine hours in a car together. <laughs> That's not the part that really excites me, although I am looking forward to that. Um, we're going to go to Indianapolis for the Gospel Coalition's three-day church conference for leaders. And uh, Facebook reminded my wife this morning, uh, I was there eight years ago, uh, and I was there six years ago actually too, but it's an every other year thing and I haven't been for six years. But the Gospel Coalition serves churches and church leaders and Christians throughout the world by producing content that's helpful. So if you're ever looking for a place to Go find sermons or book recommendations. That's a great website. And so I just want to let you know that we're doing that. I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be preached at, to, to attend specific breakout seminars that will help us uh, serve you better as, as a church staff. And so that's what we're going to do. And if you want to say a few prayers for us, we'd appreciate that. Second here, as we come back to the book of Acts, um, I'm going to say more about what it means to come back into the book of Acts in a moment, of course. But... I just wanted to say this year, one of, one of my goals for preaching was to, to get better at a couple of specific things, but one of those was offering direct application from the Bible to our lives. However, this sermon is not going to be one of those. Um, it's not to say there's no applications, that would, that would be strange. Um, but it is to say I really only have one basic point to make. Uh, it's just gonna take me 25 minutes to get, to make it. Um, but I hope the point is encouraging. And the point is this, because Jesus lives and because he loves, we can face tomorrow. 
That's, that, that's what we sang about on Easter at the end of our service. And that's what I just see all over this passage. So if you would, one more time, would you pray with me? And then we'll study this passage together. Heavenly Father, it's so encouraging as as I think about the Apostle Paul here some 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. The way it still meant everything to him. Lord, I pray that for us as we go about our lives some now 2,000 years later, since the first resurrection as the Bible calls it, pray that it would still mean everything to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes when you're preaching, it, it, it makes sense to keep the end of the sermon veiled until you get there. Um, I don't know if that's for the surprise factor or whatnot. So, I mean, that's normally how novels and TV shows proceed. Other times, though, novels and TV shows and movies and sermons um, tell you exactly how it's going to end. And the surprise, if there is one, sort of comes along the way as you realize, oh, all of that took place to get there. This morning, this is going to be one of those sermons where we're just going to go and spill the beans. This is how the sermon's going to end. you have a Bible, look, look with me again, just verse 20, or chapter 23, verse 11. I want to read that again. The following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And the key phrases at the end of this passage are stood by me and take courage and as in Jerusalem, so in Rome. And what I hope to argue is that everything that led up to that moment, everything through the book of Acts chapter 23, verse 10, everything that led Paul to be alone in a jail cell at night created a very specific type of discouragement. I want us to see Paul's discouragement not so much as an, oh no, I have cancer moment, but rather an, oh no, the cancer is back type of moment. Both moments are sobering and unsettling, but there's a special kind of discouragement. When you've believed all, when you believe that you've done everything you can do and it wasn't enough. That's where Paul is in verse 10. Maybe you've been in a moment like that yourself. Maybe you're in one right now. Well, that now that we know that where we're heading, let me, let me back up. Let me back up and see how we get there. Because I'm going to return to that moment with the encouragement that Paul receives and that we so desperately need. But I want to organize a sermon, kind of drawing from the language of, of photography and film, where you have... Um, the wide angle, right? It's the big picture. Um, and then you have close-ups, where you see less, you know, less of the background, more of the subject. And then they have what is called the extreme close-up, where you just, you're just looking at part of the subject. And so, subject in this case being our passage. So I want to start with the wide angle. We're coming back to the book of Acts. And so when I say the wide angle, what I mean is 
kind of our passage of the book of Acts with, with the whole of the book of Acts visible in the background. So way back on October 6th, 2019, I had to look up the date. Uh, we began our sermon series in the book of Acts, and I know that feels like a really, really long time ago, because 2020 was five years, uh, but it was only 18 months ago. Since then, we've taken a number of breaks, uh, but we've preached about 40 sermons through the book of Acts, and we only have a few to go. We're going to finish before Memorial Day, but if you've been with us, um, you probably remember we gave the sermon series the title, Without Hindrance. Uh, do you remember why we did that? You know, nobody has to shout it out, but I'll give you the answer. We, we gave it the title for this reason. Among all that Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts and as well as the gospel of Luke, among all that Luke wants us to see, he wants us to see that the mission of Jesus to save sinners and build his church goes forward without hindrance even though there are actually many, many, many hindrances. Luke wants us to know, and I believe God wants us to know as we read and study and preach through the book of Acts, that God's love for his people and his church is unstoppable. And that's good news. In fact, the last word of the last verse in the last chapter in the book of Acts is without hindrance. And I say it's word. Uh, it's two words in English, I know, without hindrance. In Greek, it's one word, and we think that's intentional. That's why we titled our sermon series this way. So as we see the book of Acts through the wide lens, I want to point out how it begins. So the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They cover about 30 years. Of course, with special emphasis on the last three years of Jesus' earthly life. The book of Acts picks up the next 30 years. At the beginning of the book, Jesus, that is the book of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples receive the power of the Holy Spirit, God's presence among them, and they begin to tell others about Jesus through preaching and evangelism and missionary journeys. Now, the apostle Paul, who features prominently in the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, he's, he's not a Christian yet. And I know this is review for many of you, but I, I know there will be people coming and going and, and newer to Christianity and newer to this uh, book of Acts. And so at the beginning of the book of Acts, actually through the first third of the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, he's, he's, he's not an apostle yet. He's not even a Christian yet. In the middle third of the book, he becomes a Christian and he goes around on several missionary journeys telling others about Jesus. And the last third of the book, which is what we're studying now through May, the apostle Paul is still a Christian. Um, but he's in one jail or another on his way to Rome. And, and, and just for a moment, before we go to the close-up, I, I just, just, as we're looking at this wide angle of the book of Acts, just, just let that sink in for a moment. Like, how breathtaking that is. In just 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, churches are planted all across the Roman Empire. Like from Jerusalem all the way to, to Rome, there's church. It's, it's like as the crow flies, it's 1,500 miles. It's amazing what God did. I want to zoom in now closer on our passage. After our break for our Easter sermon series, we're, we're picking up the book of Acts, as Janice read a moment ago, somewhat, I'll say awkwardly. 
in the last verse of chapter 22. And we're going through 23.11. Let me reread verse 30 at the end of the book of Acts chapter 22 again. We read this. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews... He unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. (laughs) So what's going on? What's going on in this passage? Who is the he who keeps moving Paul around? Let's talk about all this. Just before our passage, Paul had come to Jerusalem. And he came with money and he came with church leaders. The church leaders are Gentile converts to Christianity. Um, Gentile meaning they were non-Jewish people who were converted to Christianity. And and Paul brings some of these church leaders with him. And the the money that Paul has with him, he had raised largely among Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. And the churches kind of around parts of um, Asia Minor. And he's bringing... All of that to Jerusalem so that he can help the Christians who are there, the Jewish Christians. In other words, he's bringing money and Gentiles with him to show solidarity and unity. And we're in this together and and, and we love you, our Jewish brothers who are now Christians in the faith. All of this doesn't go the way Paul planned. The way that Paul had hoped, the way that Paul had prayed. He's accused by some Jewish leaders of bringing Gentiles into the inner courts of the temple, which is a huge no-no. It was something punishable by death if he had done it. Now, he hadn't done it. He was just accused of doing it falsely. But the accusation causes a mob of Jewish people to try and, big surprise, kill Paul. Roman soldiers rush out of this kind of fort, this garrison that's just kind of annexed to the temple property. They rush out. They save, so to speak, the Apostle Paul. And in the process of removing him from the mob, Paul asks, hey, can I can I give a sermon? Can I, can I speak to these people who are trying to kill me? And the soldier's intrigued by all of this, so he says yes. Paul speaks to them about his conversion to Christianity and the mission that God sent him on. And they listen intently, it says, until he says one word, Gentiles. That God sent him to the Gentiles. The mob, like the riot, swells up again. And they try and kill Paul a second time. The Roman soldier saves him out of this, scratching his head going, what in the world is going on? And so they said, well, thinking, let's just beat Paul (laughs) until we figure out what's going on with him. Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that to me. They say, you're right. What are we going to do? How are we going to figure out why everyone hates you? It's an incredibly eventful day for Paul. That was all what we were doing right before Easter. And it leads us now to where we pick up this morning, which is this Roman military leader, a tribune or tribune, they call him. His name later, we'll hear as David preaches next week, is Claudius Lincius, I think is his name. Chapter or 23, verse 26. But this guy Claudius calls all the Jewish people together, these leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they're going to give an opportunity for Paul to stand kind of an informal trial. So, But it's not really about Paul being on trial. It's more so that the Romans can figure out what to do with this guy. And that quickly descends into what would feel 
to this Roman very obscure details about a religion he probably doesn't really understand. Or I should say religions he doesn't really understand. Let me read verses 1 to 5 again. They go like this. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of your ruler of your people. So what's going on? Well, when Paul says in verse 1 that he lived his life before God in all conscience up to this day, he's essentially saying that a good Jewish follower of God should become a Christian. That's where this goes. That's where it should go for you. He's saying, Paul is saying good Jewish people embrace their Messiah. Embrace Jesus. And then we get this detail which almost feels like this mobster movie, doesn't it? The high priest nods to his lieutenant and and this guy slugs Paul in the mouth. And Paul snaps back calling him whitewashed tombs. Which is this loaded Old Testament phrase. Paul is saying that their their souls are dead and decaying. And even though they paint white over the outside, the rot of their souls still stinks. It may be true, but <laughs> say again, as I've said a couple times over the series, like that escalated quickly. And then they quote some Old Testament verses back and forth to each other as scholars might do in those kind of quotes back and forth, Paul essentially apologizes, saying that he didn't know he was talking to the high priest and he shouldn't have spoken that way. And then we'll talk about that later in a minute. Then we read verses 6 to 10. Let Let me read this to us again. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, Luke helps us out and his readers in these next few verses. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Think sort of Democrat-Republican. Like, like this is, okay, all trying to help our government and people thrive, we're coming at it from very different Ways. So there's, there's a division among them in this d- kind of group that's together. They're actually divided. So verse 8, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Which was a, a wild reversal very quickly there. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn 
to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The Sadducees were a more liberal, or maybe we'd use the word progressive, um, portion of Judaism. And they didn't believe a lot of the Bible. They really only, they would say, accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. How much they accepted and believed of those is, I suppose, a discussion. But they didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and it seemed like they believed all of the Bible, except, of course, the parts about loving God with all of your heart. Paul uses this disagreement between the two groups to his advantage. Like he's looking out, he's like, okay, I see this, and I'm here on trial, and, and in a loud voice, he shouts out, okay, I'm here because of the resurrection. Now, the Pharisees believed in a general resurrection. Paul, I think in his heart of hearts, is saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, starting with Jesus, and then later all of us. Now, the Pharisees didn't believe in all of that, but it's enough um, that for the third time in just two days, the Jewish mob tries to kill him. You see a pattern's developing. And this passage began with the Roman leader trying to figure out why this mob was after Paul. And by the end of the passage, he must have still been utterly confused. One pastor equated him to a recent West Point graduate. So, you know, say he's from New England and he graduates from West Point and he's deployed over to the Middle East and he's there to keep the peace and, and sort of be helpful. And all of a sudden he's, he just finds himself between two warring parties in this religious controversy. He, he really doesn't understand at all. But the Roman military officer is not the only one discouraged. Paul is too. Even more so. So we've seen the wide angle and we've seen the close-up. What I want to do now is what they call the extreme close-up. It's where like in film you just like sort of see someone's eyes or their hand or, or some key movement here that typifies like what's happening in the story. I want to do an extreme zoom in here on verse 11. Let me read it one more time. The following night, the Lord stood by him. And said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And this is where the passage, I think, starts to get really good for us to hear. At the start, I said that Paul's discouragement prior to this moment is not so much an, oh no, I have cancer moment, which is to say something that comes in surprising and devastating. Um, but, but, but again, surprising, like you didn't see it coming. This is not so much that, but rather an, oh no, the cancer is back moment. What do I mean by that? Well, first, three things. But first, Paul has done his very best, and he's come up short. He thought about what to bring to Jerusalem to make this work. He brought donated money and Gentile Christians to show unity. And, 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 and this is really key. Just a few months prior to all of this unraveling, 
He's journeying to, to Jerusalem. He writes a letter. Sort of like, okay, you're going over here and you shoot a text message to these people over here. Like, Paul is, he's going to Jerusalem, but he, he, he spends some time in the region around Corinth and he writes a letter. This is Acts chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. It doesn't say he wrote Romans, but when you put all the details together, this is when he wrote the letter to the Christians in Rome. He's never been to Rome, but, but, but he writes a letter to them. And I'm going to make kind of a big deal of that. So he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome. We call it Romans. And in that letter, he mentions how much he wants to come see them. Chapter 1, verses kind of 9 through 11, he says, I long to see you so that we can mutually encourage each other in our faith. And then near the end of the letter, from chapter 15, Paul has this to say. Remember, he's going to Jerusalem, but he, he writes kind of the sideways thing to the Christians in Rome. And he says this. Chapter 15, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia, these are kind of regions where he had been and churches were, Gentile churches. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor, um, or uh, the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. For indeed they, these, these Gentile churches, owe it to them, the church in Jerusalem. For if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, completed the trip to Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave, so notice that I will leave for Spain by way of you. In other words, I'm going to go here and then I'm going to go there. I'm going to come see you. In other words, he's gone on record that he wants to go to Rome. This is Rome. This is in public kind of, this this is out there. And he's done his best to work out the details so that this plan would work. But now in jail, it looks like all of his effort is going to evaporate. Just for a moment, imagine an entrepreneur who's crafted this perfect business plan. She secured venture capital. She built marketing tools and a website. It, 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 it launched already. It's out there. The public knows about her plan. Her friends know about her plan. And she's done, in a sense, everything right. And then in a moment, months and months of work go And it all falls apart. That's Paul. His weakness is a hindrance. He, he, he couldn't get it done. And not only... Have his own power and ingenuity let him down. He's physically beaten up. All throughout the missionary journeys that he's on. He, he, okay, he's been persecuted. He's taken a beating. Sometimes he fleed. Sometimes he stayed. But, but never three times in two days. Every joint in his body must hurt. There's no aspirin, no neosporin, no antibiotics, no nothing to help him feel better. His wounds are a hindrance to the gospel. How is God going to play music with a bruised reed or shine light through a smoldering wick? And not only the physical pain, but but also mingled up in all of this is his own sin. This is going to strike us maybe as unusual here because most of the time... As we talk about the Apostle Paul, and I think this is right because most of the time when the Bible presents the Apostle Paul, when Paul does this or that, it's putting Paul forward as a, really a pattern to be imitated. 
And that makes sense. Paul's a really, really good follower of Jesus most of the time. But followers of Jesus are only followers. They're not Jesus. When Paul wrote that letter to the church in Rome, there's just a couple months before he goes to Jerusalem. He has a lot to say about loving enemies. For example, in chapter 12, he writes this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, he writes, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. It's chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Kind of a a mashup there of a few of those verses. Is that what Paul did? When when Paul was cursed, did he bless? No, when, when Paul's cursed, he curses back. In another place in Romans, Paul writes... This is chapter 9 of Romans. He writes that that if I could be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would do it. Like, that's a hypothetical. It can't really happen. But he says, like, like if God could, like, damn me to hell so that they could all be saved, I'd do it. Is that what came out there in that moment? Not really. He may have been clever with that line about the resurrection and to avoid the squabble or create the squabble actually and to sort of get out of the trial there. But I'm not really sure they knew that Paul loved them. I'm not really sure from that moment there they knew that Jesus loved them. Paul just had enough. And, And we can understand that. You know, you contrast this speaking of Jesus with how Jesus acted when he was on trial. There's almost an exact same scenario, and it's almost like Luke is crafting it in parallel. It happened in both cases, but 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 the the the, the way they're put in front of us, it's almost in kind of this anti-parallel. Or maybe the word would be perpendicular. When Jesus in John 18 is, he's, he's there, he's on trial. This is the night before the crucifixion. Um, a similar thing happens. Uh, the high priest says, punch Jesus. They punch Jesus. And Jesus just in a very calm voice speaks back to them. The way the apostle Paul, or excuse me, the apostle Peter writes about it in, in his letter, first Peter chapter two, verse 23, he says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In other words, Paul knows his own sin is a hindrance to God's mission. And these three hindrances stand between Paul and this wholehearted serving of the Lord. This this mission of God going forward in his life. He's not strong enough to execute his plans. He's beaten up and he has his own sin to deal with. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 23 verse 10. He tried his best and he's sitting there alone and he feels like an utter failure. I told everybody I was going to Rome. I'm never even going to get there. And when said this way, you know what Paul's three hindrances sound like to me? This will sound familiar. Weak, wounded, and wayward. If you've been here with us over the Easter, you heard us talk about that. 
But Paul also believes in the living Jesus. It is, he says, with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. That's, that's, that's what he says. That's what he believes. And the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to him that very night. And he stood by him and encouraged him. You, you, you think about that. It's because the living Jesus had really, truly forgiven him. You see, when Paul is converted, Jesus shouts at the apostle Paul, Why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul had participated in the death of Christians, which of course was wrong. But Jesus comes to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? But now, all those sins, they're they're gone. They're, they're, They're forgiven. They were crucified with Christ. Paul is loved by the living and resurrected Jesus. And Paul is sustained by the living Jesus. Like this moment here is going to carry him. And David's going to talk about this next week. Through the next two years of his life all the way to Rome. I once heard a story about a pastor who was retired. There's a pastor who's retired and then he got sick. And, and he's in the hospital one night and he sort of just hobbles alone with his, 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 like, you know, the IV stand thing, um, beside him on his way to the restroom and, and he fell over. Couldn't get up. Couldn't reach that little, like, string thing on the wall, you know, you pull and nurses come. And he was helpless and he was hurt and he was angry. But as he laid there, the story goes, he realized how much God loved him. Laying there, he knew he's not preaching sermons. He's not leading Bible studies. He's not praying for lost people in China. He didn't have anything to offer Jesus but his need. And it was as though he understood the gospel for the first time. Church, I'd love to have seven application points and how you can live better lives as followers of Jesus. And and, and maybe those will show up in coming weeks. But this morning, I just want to remind you that because Jesus lives, you can face tomorrow. Invite the music team to come back up. Lead us in songs as we close. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, this sermon for some here this morning is for today. And for those of us who it's not necessarily for today, today, I pray that you'd tuck it away for a day when we need it. And Lord, I pray if there is an application for us, maybe it's that we would take this hope out as it sent out the Apostle Paul. To be those who can share about the hope of the resurrection with a world that desperately needs to hear it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.